This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Well, three Sundays from today, Grace Point will be hosting renowned author and speaker Phyllis Tickle. We're going to host Phyllis in both of our Sunday morning services, and then maybe more importantly, or at least more enjoyably, We're going to host her again Sunday evening for a community conversation. We would encourage you to invite your friends. This is a formidable woman, renowned woman, and uh, we're really fortunate to have her. So that Sunday evening from 530 to 7, we're going to spend an hour and a half picking her brain and soul, just going to have a community conversation with Phyllis. Phyllis was an academic for a long time, English and literature, and then in her early 40s, uh, she had ventured over into publishing so effectively that Publishers Weekly, Publishers Weekly called her and said with the with the burgeoning religious um, uh, literature that uh, is, is really impacting the publishing world, it struck them that they did not have a religion department. And so she was so respected that Publishers Weekly asked her to be the founding editor of their religion department, which is now a major uh, department among them. She left that after a while, after establishing that, and really gave herself to writing. She lives with her husband over in West Tennessee on a farm. He's a pretty renowned doctor through the years. I can't remember, Dr. Tickle was a pulmonologist, uh, some sort of specialist, but they're really wonderful people, pretty earthy people. Um, She's a lay minister, a lay Eucharist minister in the Episcopal Church, but She's also the author of more than 24 books. I think I've read seven or eight of them and should read all of them because every one of them are are, are wonderful. Uh, Anytime we have an author come in, that's not us saying this is our denomination, this is what we agree with, this is, you know, everything that writer says we like. My granddad used to say, uh, he used to say, poor old boy read one book and thinks he's smart. And then he would say, poor old boy read one book and bought the whole thing. Well, I can tell you that Phyllis probably disagrees with something that she wrote five years ago. We're all evolving and changing. But with that said, that disclaimer, I don't know many people that I agree with more than I do Phyllis Tickle. She is a vibrant 80-year-old. She is 80, and and we normally do the Sunday night things at 6.30, but she said she likes to be in bed by about 7 or 7.30, so we moved it up to 5.30 for her uh, so she can take care of her uh, 80-year-old frame. But she is incredibly vibrant, and she is one of the most respected authorities on religion in America today. Catholic and Protestant sides recognize her, liberal and conservative. She's a real bridge builder, but she's an incredible authority on religion, especially in the West, maybe even especially in North America, not just the United States, but North, uh, the U.S. and Canada. Um, she's going to come, she has 24 books, but she's going to come and she's going to lead a conversation and speak expressly regarding her latest offering, her latest book that was released a few months ago, I think in December of 2013. So it's just been out about six months. And it's, the, it's really the culmination of her work and really her, uh, what do you call it, her leitmotif, her real central world view. The book is called, here it is, the book is called The Age of the Spirit. It's subtitled The Age of the Holy Spirit, Uh, which piques the ears of somebody like myself from a Pentecostal background, but it's a much broader perspective than I grew up with simply in the little Pentecostal world. Uh, The Age of the Spirit, the subtitle is How the Ghost 
of an ancient controversy is shaping the church. Now, helping us prepare for Phyllis's coming. I'm going to do a Bible study today, so for those of you that um, love Bible study, this is going to be great. For the others of you, just kind of turn your mind on, and we're going to walk through some things that are really important that set a foundation for what she's going to say when she gets here. And helping us prepare for that, it's not just these Bible studies, these messages that I'm going to do the next couple of weeks, but before she gets here July 6th, what is that? Let's see, 15, 22, yeah, so three weeks from now. I got two more after today. We're recommending that everybody, highly encouraging you, those of you guys that are going to Haiti, pick this up. Let's read it while we're down there and talk about it on the plane and uh, in the evenings when we're not working. But she wrote a book in 2008 that's kind of a primer for this last book. She's actually written a trilogy of books, maybe a quadrilateral of books on this subject, but here's the one that I'd recommend because she recommended it. Uh, it's called The Great Emergence, How Christianity is Changing and Why. Now, some people hear how Christianity is changing and they're like, wait a minute, Christ doesn't change. You're exactly right. Christ doesn't, but Christianity does. And all of you come from denominations and as hard as this may be to hear, your denomination did not start on the day of Pentecost. I know, I know, you think Southern Baptist uh, had a Lifeway convention on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago, but that's not the way it happened. All of our denominations have happened since then. Christianity's always changing. It's always been changing. Those of us that are going down to Haiti this week, we will be confronted. I thought this morning, I wonder, I wonder if this will just totally knock me off this series. It has, you go somewhere and you see Christianity in such a different light. You experience your brothers and sisters in such a different way. It can really be sobering. Hopefully it will be in keeping with what I'm saying here. But this book, The Great Emergence, is a good one. We gave out about 80. Well, actually, thank you. I told you you could take them for free if you needed to, but you guys pretty much paid for them last week. There were 80 of them. If you don't have money, don't feel bad. There's not a one of us that hadn't been there. Take a book, but make sure you read it. So those that didn't get it, get the ones of these books that's left. Here's what Phyllis is saying. And I, it, it tweaks me a little bit. Part of it, I think she oversells, but that's the nature of all of us as artists. We oversell our deal. But uh, maybe she's not overselling it. The more I look, the more it really rings true with me. She self-describes as a sociologist of religion. Most define her as an acute observer of the Christian church. And that's the way I know her. I don't know anybody who knows more about the nature of the North American church than Phyllis does. She notes in her book, if this were a dissertation, her theme would be that every 500 years in the Christian church, uh, a, a massive transition happens. Now, she would say that every day transition is happening in the church. She would say that every century there are major movements born. For those of you like me who come from the Pentecostal movement, I can just say in my 46 years, I've been gr very gratified. When I was a young child, Pentecostalism was on the fringes. It is now a central part of the body of Christ, and it is impacted, and I'm very gratified. It, it was not... And my parents and grandparents even know this more than I do. It was not fun um, socially to be a Pentecostal 
some 50, 60 years ago, even 30 to 40 years ago. But we hung in there. We were true to what we felt like God was showing us. And time has proven. I mean, the, the big river of the church, it branches off all the time. And sometimes those branches end up in heresy. When they do, the church can absorb it and it will die and it'll backflow right back into the flow. Sometimes those little tributaries, Anabaptist movements, Wesleyan movements, Protestant reformations, Orthodox splits, Pentecostalism, sometimes those little tributaries that are called heretical for 60 or 70 years, sometimes they pick up speed, Paul, and they actually redirect the whole river. Tickle knows that that's always happening. And, but she especially notes that every 500 years, a massive sense of that happens. And she builds a pretty strong case for that. I don't know that she's saying that every 500 years this is done at the behest of God. She does kind of intimate that it feels more than coincidental. But she observes and describes five of these massive transitions. Beginning in the beginning with what she calls. And all five of them uses the modifier great. So it's the great something. So 2,000 years ago on, at, at the beginning of the church... She calls that the great transformation. When God came in the person of Jesus, I think all of us would agree that the beginning of our movement called Christianity was a profound move of God in this earth. The great transformation. I'm not going to spend time describing them. I just want you to know what she's saying. The second move, major move, so that was the first century. So five centuries from them, you come to the, from there, you come to the sixth century. She describes that massive transition as the great decline and fall of the Roman Empire. When the Roman Empire began its process of really fully imploding, Christianity since the time of Constantine in the 4th century had become so intertwined with the politics of the Roman Empire that Christianity had become Christendom. And Christendom was greatly impacted in the 6th century with what she calls the great decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Perhaps coincidentally, the Pope at the time, born in 540, came to rule in 590, who was an incredible reformer in the church. His name was actually Gregory the Great. And the church really went through a major transition. One side went institutional, and the other side went mystical and monastic. And those two streams are continuing to this day to impact the church and to stand in tension with one another. Five centuries from then the 11th century, somewhere around 1050, the church had not formally split up to that time. You think about all of our 31,000 denominations over the last 400 years, the church did not know that sense in the first 1,000 years. And, and be careful when you just roll things off like 1,000 years. 1,000 years is a long time, and we had not formally split. But in 1050, in what's called the Great Schism, we split east and west, the empire was splitting and now Christendom split and one side went to the east, had its capital at Constantinople and the other side stayed home in the west in Rome and now that is what we know as the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. And the impact of that Orthodox Catholic split is immense. In just a few years, the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church are going to get together in a monumental event that for people in Protestant circles, we really can't fathom what that event's going to be like, but it's huge. Five centuries later, 16th century, 
And, and I'm encouraging you to stay awake right now. Some of you aren't into history, but if, even if you're not given to history, history is an incredibly important part of a healthy life, an incredibly important part. And some of you love U.S. history, world history. I encourage you as a part of the church to at least learn to appreciate church history. In the 16th century, an incredible something happened. You had the great transformation, the great decline and fall, the great schism, and in the 16th century, 1550, with guys like Luther, Wycliffe, Knox, Calvin, uh, Zwingli, Munster, major figures, we had what? What happened in the 16th century? The Reformation, and we call it, we call it the Protestant Reformation, but it's uh, historically called the Great Reformation. Move five centuries from there, and we are in the 21st century, and this one you can't define. You can only sense it. Uh, Tickle calls it the great emergence, and there is a large upheaval happening in the Christian church right now. Let me read a little bit, just a few paragraphs from her book. Hang with me. The right reverend, she quotes, the right reverend Mark Dyer, an Anglican bishop known for his wit as well as his wisdom, famously observes from time to time that the only way to understand what is currently happening to us as 21st century Christians in North America is first to understand that about every 500 years, the church feels compelled to hold a giant rummage cell. You say, what's happening? She said something's happening to the Christian church in North America. Don't be fools. 60 years ago, in the buckle of the Bible Belt called Nashville, Tennessee, that hosts more churches per capita than any other place in the United States, 60 years ago, 75% of people in this town counted themselves faithful attenders of church. Today, that number has fallen in the low 40s. We are down to the 42 to 43%. That's the buckle of the Bible Belt. Mike, we're not talking about Canada. We're not talking about New England or the Midwest. We're talking about here. Something is happening to the Christian church. He goes on to say that we are living in and through one of those 500-year sales. Now, while the bishop may be using a bit of humor to make a point with the rummage cell bit, his is nonetheless a deadly serious and exquisitely accurate point. Any usable discussion of the great emergence that is currently happening in Christianity today must commence with yesterday and a discussion of history. Only history can expose the patterns and confluences of the past in such a way as to help us identify the patterns and flow of our own times and occupy these times more faithfully. If you don't know and learn from the past, your present is greatly mitigated in its effect. The first pattern that we must consider as relevant to the great emergence is Bishop Dyer's rummage sale. When numbers in the buckle of the Bible belt have fallen from 75 to 42% in less than 60 years, there's a rummage sale going on, folks. And if not faith in Christ, because there are a lot of folk who still have faith in Christ, but they have taken the idea of formal religion and church attendance, and they have 
They have put it as an old part of their house that was stored in a closet, and they might as well get rid of it and get a little money for it. There is a rummage sale going on. The first patterns that we must consider is the idea of the rummage sale, which as a pattern is not only foundational to our understanding, but also psychologically very reassuring for us. Do you think this is the first time or the first place in 2,000 years of church history that there has been a waning of spiritual commitment? This isn't the first time, and we're not the only place this has happened. That is, as Bishop Dyer observes, about every 500 years, listen to this, every 500 years, the empowered structures of institutionalized Christianity. Has anybody ever run into the empowered structures of institutionalized Christianity? Anybody know what he means by the empowered empowered structures of institutionalized Christianity? It happens wherever Christianity happens. My granddad used to say about marriage, I tell every young couple who's getting married, I said, my granddad used to say, marriage is a wonderful institution for those who want to be institutionalized. <laughs> Something as beautiful as marriage can turn the institution of marriage, you can get institutionalized in more ways than one. Don't say amen. The empowered structures of institutionalized Christianity, it happens. It happens here. I know you think that. It gets back to me when somebody says, well, we were trying to do this, but, you know, we ran it up the flagpole and the powers that be. I know, I know you're not talking about me, but I know you're talking about the church board. People like Melissa, <laughs> Pastor Clint, the elders. Every time I hear it, it aggravates me, but I understand it. The powers that be. <sighs> the better angels of my nature, the last thing I want to be is the institutionalized, empowered structures, the powers that be. But there's an ego side of me that's just as alive as yours and is prone to that very thing. Every 500 years, the empowered structures of institutionalized Christianity whatever they may be at the time, whether it's a small church's founding pastor, a board that's been, seven of them has been here since the beginning. Whatever those powers may be, ultimately become an intolerable carapace that must be shattered in order that renewal and new growth may occur. When that mighty upheaval happens, history shows us there are always at least three consistent results or corollary events. First, through the upheaval, a new, more vital form, and this is true every time it's happened, a new, more vital form of Christianity emerges. Second, the organized expression of Christianity, which up to then had been the dominant one, reconstitutes itself. You see, for all of us Protestants who left, the church we left didn't die. As a matter of fact, 500 years later, it has produced one of the greatest popes in history that is building bridges back to us and saying things that we need to be saying. That church didn't die. Now, they were aggravated at us, and we were aggravated at them, but when we got out the door, what they wouldn't admit to us, they turned inwardly and said, brethren, we may not totally agree with what they did, but we cannot discount this when we've just lost 30% of our membership. We can arrogantly sit here 
or we can humbly do an exit interview and major reform has happened in the Catholic Church from that time on. First, a new more vital form of Christianity does emerge. I'm sure our Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters would take issue with a more vital form, maybe just in the season. Second, the organized expression, if they're not fools, reconstitute themselves into a more pure and less ossified expression of its former self, or they die. As a result of this, usually energetic but rarely benign process, that's, that's being kind, energetic but rarely benign, up until this fifth one, every one of the movements before, there was bloodshed both ways. We killed one another. Now we do that much more discreetly. As a result of this usually energetic but rarely benign process, the church actually ends up with two new creatures where once there had been only one, east-west, monastic, academic, Protestant, Catholic, that is, in the course of birthing a brand new expression of its faith and practice, the church also gains a grand refurbishment of the older one. The third result is of equal, if not greater, significance. That is, every time the incrustations, anybody ever experienced the incrustations of an institution, of a church? Anybody ever been of a part of a church that once thrived and was beautiful, and you just watched it little by little die. The third result is that every time the incrustations of an overly established Christianity, anybody know what an overly established Christianity is? Every time these incrustations are broken open by a move of the Spirit, the faith of Jesus Christ spreads it spreads dramatically into new geographic and demographic areas, thereby increasing exponentially the range and depth of Christianity's reach as a result of its time of terrible unease and distress. Thus, for example, the birth of Protestantism not only established a new powerful way of being Christian, but it also forced Roman Catholicism to make changes in its own structures and practice. As a result of both those changes, Christianity was spread over far more of the earth's territory than had ever been true in, in the past. Talking about the move of the Holy Spirit, now let me lay a biblical foundation. As a church, as a church, Grace Point is entering its second decade. Part of our maturity as a congregation is to become less narcissistic and less self-absorbed. You say, well, that's pretty harsh terms for the founding pastor describe, to describe the first 10 years of the church that he has led and been a big part of. I don't mean narcissistic and self-absorbed in terms of our first decade as an indictment. I simply mean it as an appropriate admission. Narcissism and self-absorption is the nature of all institutions and individuals in the first phase of life. Go to any church or any institution or any individual and observe the first decade of that institution, church, or individual's life, and there is a natural sense of self-absorption. But as we mature and move into the second decade, I have no sense that we're going to be as mature 
in our second decade as some of the churches who have been around for a long time and have proven themselves in the community. But as we move into adolescence, our goal is to become less absorbed while ironically doing that by becoming more self-aware. How do you become less self-absorbed by becoming more self-aware? Well, the more we introspect and look into the true nature of who we are, the more that necessarily includes learning our place in a much bigger story than our own. The tendency of any church when it moves into an area or into a town is to start with such a vibrancy that there is almost the idea that this is the next hot thing and we are the thing that's happening and we're going to finally do church right. And that is a presumptuous arrogance that is unfounded and can even be unhealthy if it persists too long. As that young church matures, it necessarily begins to get a sense, hey, wait a minute, I'm, I'm part of something bigger and more beautiful than just us. We are not alone, we are not isolated, but we are wonderfully located in the midst of a robust and vast broader community called the Christian church. One of the reasons that I'm going to Haiti this week is not just to minister to people there, I'm going to Haiti to minister to a 15-year-old son of mine. Because at some point, all of our children about that age need to be exposed to the third world. I not only want him to be exposed to the third world in terms of this global community, I want him to see Christians there who live differently, to, who, who do things differently, who express their faith in Jesus differently. I want him to see a different part of the church, not just a different part of the world. I want him to realize what I want us to realize, and this is why we bring somebody like Phyllis in. We are connected to those who are doctrinally different than we. We are connected to those who are denominationally different, who are geographically different, and who are chronologically different than us. Our communion is made up of people from different centuries. Yes, we are a communion of saints living and dead. Our communion is a communion of dead people and living people because our dead are not just dead, they are dead in Christ. And if they are in Christ and we are in Christ, then we are together with them at the altar and they yet speak. That's why Tommy Bell, after burying her husband, she just walked into the back room between services with a little bag and she said, I wanted to give you this. And as she walked away, I opened it up, Frank, and it was a tie that Billy wore. I got one of Billy Bell's ties. He lives. He's at our altar today in Christ. We are connected, and our communion is made up of people from different centuries, different cultures, different countries, and different expressions of our shared faith in God and Christ. But the one commonality in all of those differences that we at the very least share, though I'm sure there are others, the one commonality that Stan Jr. is going to experience, Mark, as your daughter is going to experience as we take our kids down there, the one commonality he's going to get, the language will be different, the expression will be different, but he will hear them say Jesus. He will hear them say Jesus. We share faith in Jesus Christ. We are a people, old and young, far and wide, who believe Jesus was and is Emmanuel. 
We are a people who not only looked into a manger, but to this day believe that God is with us. We believe that Jesus is the ultimate statement that God is with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. When the silver-tongued prophet Isaiah could not fully wrap his lips around the word Jesus, with that on the tip of his tongue, moved by the Spirit of Christ, Peter said, Isaiah said, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. For behold, God will give us a sign, a virgin shall conceive, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. We are a people who believe, in other words, we are a people who believe and describe God's presence with creation with the name and life of Jesus Christ. When we say Jesus, we are saying God is with creation. When we say Jesus, Yeshua, Jehovah has become salvation, we are saying Emmanuel, God is with creation. He is with us in a deeper manner than we can even begin to fathom. Last Sunday, June 8th was Pentecost Sunday. It was the 50th and last day of the Easter season. That day in the life of the church is the day, we're doing history now, it is the day when we celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Jerusalem. That is the day that Jesus had pointed ahead to throughout his ministry saying, it's coming. The Holy Spirit is going to fall. It's going to be a part of every life. It's coming, Jesus said. And then finally it came. And when the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, it marked what we know and believe to be the birth of the Christian church. The birth of the Christian church that Peter stood on that day with the 11 apostles and preached, quoting Joel from the Old Testament, Peter said, this that you see is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days. The last move God said that I'm going to do in the earth that will take us right to the end, however long that is, thousands or billions, we don't know. But the last move I'm going to make is Emmanuel, God with us. And Joel said in that day, he will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And it won't just be kings and priests and prophets. It won't just be the spiritual elite. It won't just be Israel, but Gentiles and Jews. Slave and free, rich and poor, men and women. Joel said in that day, women, the repressed, those who live beneath not the glass ceiling but the glass floor, they will be elevated and on his handmaidens he'll pour out his spirit and even the women will prophesy. All flesh. The original story of the church's birth is found at the beginning of a biblical book we call the Acts of the Apostles. The church in its earliest days was not sure of who wrote the Acts of the Apostles, so they ascribed it in their best guess fashion, and I think appropriately so. It's a good guess, an educated guess. They ascribed authorship of the book of Acts, that book that tells the story of the early church, they ascribed it to Luke, a young doctor who was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. There are reasons internally to think that Luke may have written that book 
But there were theological reasons as well because the early church in forming their canon needed every book to be connected to an apostle. And Luke was the traveling companion of Paul. And Luke supposedly gave us two books. While we're not sure it was Luke, the early church recognized what we recognize, and that is whoever wrote the book of Acts wrote the book of Luke. And they didn't write the book of Luke and the book of Acts to be read with the book of John between them. They wrote them as one book. And you are to read those books, the Luke and Act duology as one book. Where the Luke gospel ends, the book of Acts immediately commences. In our Easter series, we took the conclusion of the book of Luke, the 24th and the final chapter, and we showed at the beginning of that chapter how Jesus got up out of a grave and the Bible tells us that he appeared to his disciples and he did something remarkable. And it was in our entire Eastertide series. The Bible says that this one crucified by bad interpretations of scripture as well as bad interpretations of government. This one who had been horribly abused by the misuse of scripture, he got up out of the grave and with those wounds still healing, if you have religious wounds, welcome to the life of Jesus. And with those religious wounds still healing, Paul, the Bible says that he took them back to the sacred text and he said the problem's not the book. And the scripture says that he interpreted and explained and opened the scripture that they might understand it. Ultimately, the Bible said on the last day that he was with them, right before he ascended into heaven, he opened their minds that they might understand the scripture. And while he opened their minds, Bobby, that they might get the scripture, the Bible said immediately he began to leave them. The book of Luke ends. Let's read a few verses here. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures a group of people, people of God, lived faithfully with a text for hundreds of years that they didn't understand. That is possible. Don't be arrogant with the Bible. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what my father promised, so stay here in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands, blessed them, and while he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God close the gospel of Luke, open the book of Acts. Look at it. The first account I composed, O Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Theophilus, probably a pet name for the Christian church that means something like beloved ones. We see the word one other time in the New Testament, and it's at the beginning, you guessed it, of the gospel of Luke. He's writing to Theophilus. Same, same writer, same book. The first account, the first part of the duology, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, 
To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, you just read that in Luke, gathering together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but Jesus said, here's the whole deal. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The first verse of the book of Acts is a very telling one. It is a compelling one as well. The first verse of the book of Acts describes the ministry of Jesus up to the point of his ascension. The writer looks back and says, I'm going to tell you what Jesus did up to the time that we saw him float into the heavens. In describing that ministry on earth during the 30 years, 30 or so years of Jesus' life, when, when the writer looked back and said there was 30 years that this son of Mary and Joseph, this famed rabbi and healer, this crucified and resurrected one, the author says clearly this time, this pre-ascension time on earth, listen, was what Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus in the Gospels only began his ministry. When you see Jesus die, be buried and resurrected and ascend into the heavens, you have only witnessed in the Gospel record the beginnings of what Jesus began to do and teach. The clear implication of that grammar is that Jesus would continue to do and teach. And that continuance, the grammar is saying Jesus is not finished. There is a heresy, a false teaching that's very understandable in the second and third century of the church. It was called sequential modalism. Now, you don't have to remember sequential modalism, but some of you have believed it and thought it. The church said what we see in the Trinity is that God in the Old Testament was the Father. And then God the Father handed the baton to a new form of God, and that was the Son. And you've got him in the Gospels, right? And at the end of the Gospels, Jesus gets done with his work, and he hands the baton to who? The Holy Spirit. Now we're in the age of the Spirit. Instead of seeing the continual coexistence of the three, the sequential modalist, some of you have thought that way, said it's clear. He was Father, then he was Son, then he was Holy Spirit. That was one of the things that the church had to wrestle through in the beginning. But the reality is ultimately the church decided, no, 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 no. Jesus didn't hand the baton off. Jesus simply through the mystery of the Holy Spirit continued his work. Let me just say this, and I'm going to have to close. I'm going to end here because I know it's Father's Day and you got to get to lunch. I'm going to be respectful of that. <clears throat> we'll pick up here next week. What Phyllis is going to try to remind us, and I'm going to build a case for in the next couple of weeks, is that you are, through the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, you are the continuing work of Jesus doing and teaching. Jesus is doing and teaching through 
the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Christian church. And I'm going to make a case that I think is clearly made in Scripture, and I'll just stop here today. That when you compare God's expression in the person of the fleshly man named Jesus, when you compare what Jesus did in that physical life called Jesus of Nazareth to what is happening in the life of a transforming, emerging, fighting, struggling, arguing, loving church. The church in its present structure, East, West, Catholic, Protestant, liberal, conservative, Pentecostal, Church of Christ, the church in all of its variations, Haiti, Tennessee, New England, Nova Scotia, Namibia, Angola, Bangladesh, 16th century, 20th century, 4th century Syria. When you compare God in the person of Jesus with God in what is now called the body of Christ, Jesus says clearly that expression, that church that aggravates the soup out of you, that religious incrustation that it can be, will do greater works and have a greater impact in the world than he himself had. God continues to do and teach through the body of Christ, the second body of Christ, and in the second body of Christ, John 14 and 12, Jesus said, I've told you I'm going away and you're sad. But it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I go away, the Father will send the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, the body of Christ will make a transition from one man to every body filled with the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And when the body of Christ is no longer relegated to one man, but the body of Christ in its fullness, living and dead, far and wide, old and young, when the body of Christ is many, will there be problems? Will there be struggles? Will we get on one another's nerves and disagree? Yes. But Jesus said, I thought it through, and he looked at his body, and he walked on water and raised the dead, and he looked at Mary and said, let me go. There's something better coming. It's called the Christian church. Brothers and sisters, the Christian church is the continuing work of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the quicker we understand ourselves and our history, the better we will be prepared to faithfully tend to the call of God in our community, in our culture, and in our context. Can you say amen? amen. Two more weeks, we're going to walk through this study. Next week, we're going to get down into the text, and I think it'll make a lot of sense to you. Pick up the book. Happy Father's Day to you. Let me pray with you. Lord, thank you for calling us the body of Christ. Oh, to be the replacements of Jesus in the earth. Oh, what a privilege. Forgive us for our incrustations. Forgive us for the ways that we missteward the power you've given us. 
Remind us, Lord, that we are not in incarnate form supposed to know everything, but we have received power after the Holy Spirit has come upon us to be your witnesses. Oh, Lord, make this church as we enter our second decade witnesses of the love of God manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Teach us your ways, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. And God's people said a good and hearty. Amen. Amen. Happy Father's Day. Go pick up the book, do some reading. God bless you.